This is the Thumb and Hammer Home Improvement Podcast, episode number 10. Home improvements, home renovations, home maintenance, home repairs, and all the other challenges of home ownership. Welcome to the Thumb and Hammer Home Improvement Podcast. Hey folks, welcome to the podcast. My name is Doug, and this week it's just going to be me talking to you. No guest, no interview. And what I want to talk about is some of the topics that came up in the last episode. So if you haven't listened to episode nine yet, go back and listen to that one first. That was my interview with Angela Allen from livingsmall.com. And what she talks about in that episode is, uh, well, it'll, it'll change the way you think about homeownership and maybe even about what's really important in life. I know it's changed my way of thinking quite a bit. Now, there was a lot of stuff in that episode that I did not have time to expand on, so I'm going to take the opportunity to do that now. Now, here's the deal. We are sold this bill of goods that says that we should be striving for home ownership. That's the dream. Room for your family, room to entertain your friends and relatives, family barbecues in the backyard, all that stuff. But let's look at who is selling that dream. Before I bought my first house, I rented an apartment. And after about a year or so, I got tired of having neighbors above me and neighbors below me and neighbors beside me. There was something kind of claustrophobic about that. And I was of an age and an income where owning a house was the next logical step in the standard progression of adulthood. That's what society seemed to dictate. I was growing up. It was time to buy a house. So I attended a seminar for first-time home buyers that was organized by a nearby bank. A bank. Okay. When I walked in, they gave me a nice little portfolio with some general information, amortization charts, and charts illustrating how much you could afford to borrow based on your income. Now, all of this stuff is available online today at any banking website, but this was the old school way of doing things in 1995. Think about that for a minute. It was a bank that was putting on a seminar for first-time home buyers, telling them all about the home buying process and how easy it is to own a home. <laughs> Gee, it's, uh, it's not like they have anything to gain at all, is it? Over the course of a 25-year mortgage, the bank is going to get a return on investment of about 50%. That's at today's rates. At 3.5% interest, a $100,000 mortgage, uh, you end up paying around $150,000 principal plus interest, give or take. I mean, mortgage interest is calculated differently in the U.S. than Canada, so these numbers are not exact. But still, not too shabby. So, of course, they want to lend you money to buy a house. My first mortgage was almost 8%. The bank was going to double its money after only 16 years on a 25-year mortgage. At the end of 25 years, the bank would have profited $125,000 on a $100,000 loan. That's profit. That's $125,000 in interest 
on top of the principle. Okay? Yeah. You get the idea. Nice work if you can get it. It's nice to be the banker. And last week, Angela, in their last episode, Angela talked about not wanting to be a slave to the bank. The bank sells you the dream of home ownership, but in reality, they are the ones who own you. So anyway, there came the time that I actually put in an offer on a house. It was new construction, and based on the charts and the graphs that I got at that seminar, I could easily afford it. Thankfully, I still made the offer to purchase conditional on obtaining financing because I had not yet got pre-approved for a mortgage. I kind of did things backwards. You're supposed to go and go to the bank and have them tell you how much you can borrow before you start looking at houses. That's a good idea. But anyway, I, I put in a, this offer on the house and I went to the bank and I talked to the loan officer or mortgage underwriter, whoever he was. And I said that I put in an offer on a house for this amount and that I had that much available for the down payment. The guy crunched the numbers and then he looked up at me and told me that I did not need to limit myself. I could afford a house that was $50,000 more. He didn't say, no problem, you qualify for the amount that you're asking for. He was basically saying, go buy a more expensive house so we can loan you more money. I had to say, no, 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 no. No, I, I have an offer in on a house and I only need this amount. And that's when he showed me the numbers. And frankly, seeing the numbers on paper kind of scared me. Because now the mortgage payments um, had the property tax figured in. And the, the it was going to be considerably more than what I was paying in rent on my apartment. I was also going to have to pay utilities, not to mention the fact that I had to put down sod, pave the driveway, put up a fence, all these things that weren't included in the price of the house. And I kind of got freaked out. I got cold feet and I asked the banker guy very nicely to please reject my application. You see, Banks don't care about anything other than getting their mortgage payments. They don't care about your lifestyle. I was single at the time. I enjoyed going to concerts. I enjoyed going out to bars. I enjoyed having a social life. I was planning to travel. All these things cost money. And now I was going to have much less of it in my pocket if I actually bought that house at that time. You can live the life of a hermit for all the bank cares, as long as you make your mortgage payments. Another lie that we are told when it comes to home ownership is the um, same as rent myth. You, you'll see this in real estate listings where the mortgage payments for the house amount to about the same as what you might be paying for rent. But more often than not, that's an oversimplification. It often does not take into account the property tax. It probably doesn't include the 1% that you need to set aside each year for repair and maintenance. Furnaces, air conditioners, roofs, all these things don't last forever, and you can expect to replace each of these at least once over the course of a 25-year mortgage. 
Not to mention that your insurance now needs to cover the building as well as your possessions. Insurance on the building used to be the responsibility of the landlord, but now you are the landlord. Any repair, any maintenance, any other costs related to the house, all that money is coming out of your pocket. Same as rent my lily white behind. But I digress. I am not going to try to compare renting versus buying here. Um, I'm only pointing out that home ownership isn't necessarily this wonderful ideal that we are being sold by the banks and the real estate companies. But getting back to the bank and their attempt to upsell me for uh, to, to a more expensive house, this is where you see a significant mind shift between the traditional way of thinking and the tiny house movement way of thinking. Traditionally, we are encouraged to see our house as an investment. Therefore, bigger is better. The more house, the, the more a house is worth now, the more it's going to be worth in the future. Your house is an investment, so it's okay to be house rich and cash poor. But the reality is that we do not need a large house or a McMansion. As human beings, we have three basic needs. Food, shelter, and social interaction. That's it. A house needs to serve no other purpose than to keep us warm and dry and safe from the elements. But in this consumer society, our house has become a place for our stuff. This was another topic that Angela and I touched on because... Obviously, when you downsize into a small or tiny house, you don't have room for a lot of unnecessary stuff. And when we were talking about that, I, um, I mentioned George Carlin's famous routine, A Place for My Stuff. You know how important that is. That's the whole, that's the whole meaning of life, isn't it? Trying to find a place for your stuff. That's all your house is. Your house is just a place for your stuff. If you didn't have so much damn stuff, you wouldn't need a house. You could just walk around all the time. That's all your house is. It's a pile of stuff with a cover on it. You see that when you take off in an airplane and you look down and you see everybody's got a little pile of stuff. Everybody's got their own pile of stuff. And when you leave your stuff, you've got to lock it up. Wouldn't want somebody to come by and take some of your stuff. Anyway, we kind of let stuff control us. Sometimes, sometimes you've got to move. You've got to get a bigger house. Why? Too much stuff. You've got to move all your stuff. And maybe put some of your stuff in storage. Imagine that. There's a whole industry based on keeping an eye on your stuff. I have to admit that I'm guilty of this myself. Part of the reason my wife and I moved from our first house to our current money pit was that we at least thought that we needed more room. After we got married, her stuff got combined with my stuff, and we were looking for a larger house so that we could spread out. And after my folks died, we inherited their stuff. And, um, well, our house is a partial construction zone. The addition is slated to be torn down and rebuilt, and the finished basement has been gutted back to the block foundation. And right now, we're not really using the living room either. 
So a lot of our stuff has ended up in storage. And I got to tell you that we've paid much more for storage than what the stuff we are storing is actually worth. But when the addition gets built, we will have two additional bedrooms. Well, a, a bedroom and an office in the basement. Those will need to be furnished. Uh, we're going to finish the rest of the basement, so we're going to have a recreation room or second family room, whatever you want to call it. And that's going to make a great party room. We'll be able to move the Xbox and a television down there. And then we're going to have to buy a new TV for the main floor family room. But then we'll also have to buy some furniture for the basement, not to mention our existing furniture is due to be replaced. And you can kind of see where all this is going. More rooms equals more stuff. Now, I also like what George Carlin says about vacations. This is also from the same routine. Now, sometimes you go on vacation, you got to bring some of your stuff with you. You can't bring all your stuff. Just the stuff you really like. The stuff that fits you well that month. Let's say you're going to go to Honolulu. You're going to go all the way to Honolulu. You've got to take two big bags of stuff. Plus your carry-on stuff, plus the stuff in your pockets. You get all the way to Honolulu and you get in your hotel room and you start to put away your stuff. That's the first thing you do in a hotel room is put away your stuff. I'll put some stuff in here, put some stuff down there. Here's another place for stuff here. I'll put some stuff over there. You put your stuff over there. I'm putting my stuff over here. Here's another place for stuff. Hey, we got more places than we've got stuff. We're going to have to buy more stuff. Except for that part about having to buy more stuff. Why can't we always have that vacation mentality? Why don't, why don't we just keep the stuff that we really like or need? Exist in the moment instead of existing in an envelope of stuff. Angela talked about the weight that is lifted when you get rid of stuff. And I am really looking forward to the day when we can go through the boxes that we have in storage and actually divest ourselves of stuff that, quite frankly, we really don't miss all that much. You know, after all, it's been in storage for... Well, seven years, seven and a half years. Why are we keeping it? It doesn't matter if you have a big house, a small house, or a tiny house. Less stuff is good. And if you don't have as much stuff, you really don't need as much room. So why not enjoy the freedom that comes with living in a smaller space? Like I said, we moved to a bigger house because that's what we thought we wanted and needed. But in reality, bigger has not been better. A bigger house is more expensive to heat in the winter and to keep cool in the summer. A bigger house takes more time to clean more rooms and more stuff means more surfaces to dust and polish. Renovations are more expensive. More square footage means more materials, whether flooring or paint. And a bigger house means longer wiring and plumbing runs. Not to mention that a bigger house costs more to insure and the property taxes are often higher. Downsizing is looking much more attractive. In fact, for the last decade or more, we have known that we were going to have to rebuild the addition in order to restore this house as our dream house and, and, and add a garage to make it my dream house. 
And now the wheels are actually in motion for planning that major renovation. But um, I've been starting to look at the big picture. These are just some rough round numbers to give you an idea, okay? We bought the house for $200,000. So far, we have put in $100,000 in repairs and improvements. And we are planning to spend at least another hundred dollars to $130,000 on the addition and garage and septic system. All that for a house that's going to be worth in the neighborhood of $300,000. That is well over a hundred grand that just went poof into thin air. Right now, our mortgage is down to under $70,000, but adding the amount for the addition, we will be back up to where we were when we first bought this house. And the thought of that sickens me. For a while now, I strongly suspected that we would not be able to afford to stay in this house after fixing it up. It just doesn't make sense at this point to start over from where we were a decade ago, especially since this is way more house than we actually need. We bought this house about a year after my mother died, and we thought that my father would eventually move in with us. That never happened. He stayed in his house until he passed away. We also thought that we were a growing family, but after some time, it became apparent that our daughter was going to be an only child. And speaking of our daughter, she has this beautiful, huge bedroom upstairs beautiful room. We redecorated it a few years ago. You can see the post on the website. I'll link to it on the show notes page. But even though she has this big, beautiful bedroom upstairs, she often sleeps either on the sofa in the family room or on the guest bed in the home office. And I strongly suspect that once the basement is finished, once the addition is done, once we have the new guest room in the basement, that she's probably going to sleep down there. That means there'll be two bedrooms on the second floor of our house, the entire second floor of our house, that aren't going to be used at all, except for the few weeks out of the year that my father-in-law sleeps in the guest bedroom up there. That is a lot of unused space that we have to heat and cool and keep clean or neglect. (laughs) If our daughter sleeps in the basement and has the Xbox and television set up in the basement, (laughs) we may never see her again. Not exactly conducive to a close-knit family. So yeah, we have way more house than we actually need. But it was the conversation that I had with Angela Allen, someone who is so passionate about simplified living and living in a smaller space and focusing on what's really important in life. It was that conversation that was kind of like a shock of cold water to the face or a a sledgehammer over the head. Why would I continue working for this house? Our daughter is 13. She'll probably be leaving the nest in the next five or six years, so I want to be able to enjoy the time that we have now. We want to be able to do things. We want to see more of our country. We want to travel to Europe, and we certainly won't be able to afford to do much at all unless we take drastic action. What kind of drastic action? Well, the plan right now is to go ahead with the renovation and maximize the value of the house and then put it on the market. 
We are never going to get out of it what we've put in, but we will at least put some money back into our pocket. And we can then buy a much less expensive house and owe far less than we would otherwise. We plan to downsize so that we can enjoy life because life is too short to spend it working for a house. Keep all of this in mind if you're looking to buy your first house or if you're planning to upsize. Maybe tiny house living isn't for you. I I know it certainly isn't for me. But we can all take away something from that movement to make our lives simpler and less stressful. Well, folks, that's going to do it for this week's episode. It's just a short one. You can find the show notes at thumbandhammer.com slash 10, the number 10. As always, I want to thank you so much for listening. It would help out tremendously if you could leave a rating and review in iTunes and maybe tell a friend or two about the podcast. Thank you. Now, before I wrap up, I do have a quick piece of business. As much as I wanted this to be a weekly podcast, this is something I do in my spare time. I do have a job. And I have been working six days a week. Plus, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be done around the house. And finding time to work on the website and the podcast is a bit of a challenge. So, for now, this podcast will be going to a bi-weekly schedule. That's one episode every two weeks. Thank you for understanding. And I'll talk to you again in a couple weeks. Cheers. Hey, folks. If you're still here, I want to share some personal family stuff with you. A month ago, we had a sad situation. Back in 2003, we adopted a beautiful black lab mix from our local shelter. Now, depending on who you talk to, she was either six months old, according to our vet's best guess, or a year and a half old, according to the shelter's estimate. So we split the difference, which put her birthday around the same time as our daughter's birthday. Not that we celebrate pet birthdays around here, but the point is that she was about the same age as our daughter. So our daughter basically grew up with this dog. And this dog was an absolute sweetheart. My wife can tell you a story where this dog actually saved our daughter's life, which may be a bit of an exaggeration, or maybe not, but it gives you an idea of how much this dog meant to us. In our house, pets are family. We allow them on the furniture. We allow them to sleep on the bed. Now, I know that's a turnoff for some people, but that's the way it is here. There's fur everywhere. There's scratches. Well, not scratches. The finish isn't damaged, but more like dents in the hardwood floors from the nails of the dogs where they would jump up and down off the bed. It's all part of the character of this house, and we wouldn't change a thing. A few years ago, we adopted a second dog from the same shelter, and we became a two-dog family. And as you may have guessed from my use of past tense, we are now once again a one-dog family. Last month, our black lab, who was a part of our family for the last 12 and a half years, she had a, um, a medical emergency, an episode, and we took her to the vet. The prognosis wasn't very good, so we made 
the very difficult decision, and needless to say, our hearts were broken. My point in sharing this with you is kind of related to this episode. It's so easy to get caught up in the outward appearance of a house. It's easy to view a house as a status symbol. How the house looks to the neighbors, how it looks to our family and our friends. We want square footage. We want to have top-end finishes, the best stone countertops, the finest hardwood floors. But at the end of the day, that sort of thing does not matter. A house is nothing more than a building. What makes it a home is the people, the family, and the pets that live in it. Don't lose sight of that. 